Welcome. This is David Barris, President of the American Association of Bank Directors, host of ABD's Calling All Bank Directors podcast. Today we have as our guest Dave Martin to discuss the crucial role that due diligence plays in bank mergers. Dave Martin was a, an investment banker for San O'Neill, involved in numerous bank acquisitions. Please let me know if you have any follow-up questions by contacting me at dbarris at aabd.org. All right, let's call Dave. Hello. Hello, Dave. Good morning. Dave, our, our subject today is uh, due diligence in merger transactions with banks. And so uh, I'd like you to go ahead and uh, share your experiences with, uh, with the audience. Glad to. Um, let's say that this is a typical transaction that begins with a phone call from an investment banker. He says he's representing a bank that wants to sell, and he thinks the seller should be of interest to you, and he's probably right. You go through the formalities, which are probably familiar to everybody. You sign a confidentiality agreement, and you end up with the book. The book, the investment banker might call it the confidential information memorandum. Anyway, it's a thick binder with a tremendous amount of information on a bank that you genuinely would like to acquire. You've given what you're given what seems like uh, a very short time to review the book and to submit a quote non-binding indication of interest close quotes. In other words, the price you'd be willing to pay to buy the bank, but subject to due diligence. If you're not interested, you return the book. If you decide to submit a non-binding indication of interest and it's accepted, the next step will be due diligence. I'm going to assume that you haven't done this before. By the way, in this podcast, I'll be talking about a genuine merger where you'll be acquiring all of the seller's assets and liabilities. I won't be talking about a purchase and assumption transaction like a branch purchase or a failed bank purchase. Those will be covered in a future podcast. Due diligence, what does the term mean? It's an ancient term that means an investigation undertaken with the amount of care or diligence, the due amount, appropriate to the size and complexity of the contemplated transaction. If David Barris doesn't interrupt me here, it means he's satisfied with that definition. How about it, David? Dave, no need to interrupt. Okay, that's high praise. At a basic level, the purpose of due diligence is to validate the information you've already seen in the book and then get whatever additional information you'll need to make a decision. During due diligence, you'll also be gaining an impression, and this is important, an impression of the bank's staff, and that impression will be a major factor in your decision. After due diligence, you may de decide to proceed, or you may decide to walk away, or you may decide to adjust your price or add some conditions. So obviously due diligence is a critical step in the process. If you're personally responsible for planning this examination, where do you start? You'll have to start by finding the people inside or outside your bank, your due diligence team, to help you with the job, to go into the target bank or into a data room to view reports and files and to ask questions. So a good place for you to start is by identifying the skills and knowledge required for the job and then assemble your team. I've seen lots of lists that try to identify all the areas that require examination, 
and the documents a buyer would like to see. Your lawyer probably has a list on the shelf, or you can find one online. One sample I had in my file listed 146 documents that could be grouped into 10 general topic areas. One, credit, meaning review and evaluation of the loan portfolio. Two, securities, the bond portfolio. Three, legal, including compliance, litigation, contracts, and non-financial exposures. Contracts, too, should examine very closely are the IT contract, where the dollar amount can be very large and the early termination conditions can be very expensive. Four, operations and controls. Five, IT and cybersecurity. This is an increasingly critical area, and you may decide that you need outside help unless the seller systems are essentially identical to yours. Six, finance. This account this includes accounting and the mark. I'll come back to the mark in a minute. Seven, audit. Review of the internal and external audit reports, comments, exceptions, and management letters. Eight, human resources, including employee benefits. Nine, real estate, leased facilities, and equipment. Ten, regulatory examination reports, minutes of board and committee meetings, and correspondence with the banking agencies, and administrative actions. This last group is one where you may have your inside or outside counsel assist you, and I'm going to do that by asking David to jump in here to comment on a couple of issues. First, I said that the documents you, you'll review include the seller's examination reports. Everybody listening to this podcast knows that outsiders are prohibited from seeing another bank's examination reports, and yet I've done that exactly I've done exactly that in every due diligence I've been involved in. David, can you help me here? Am I going to jail or will someone have to pay a fine for me? What's the answer? Each agency has regulations governing examination reports and matters relating to examinations that requires banks to obtain approval for the release of those that information to third parties. However, there's never been a case that I've been aware of where the banks, well, there are a few exceptions, where the banks did go to the agency for approval. This is one that I think is honored in the breach. Uh, however, it's important for the uh, banks to uh, decide on their own in uh, evaluating that issue with their counsel. Well, I haven't done any jail time, so that must be the case. Thank you, David. Well, we pray. Uh, we pray for you, Dave. <laughs> okay, praying helps. How about commenting on other documents that might be in that last section, specifically minutes of the seller's board and board committee meetings, their correspondence with banking agencies, and any administrative actions? David, you want to comment on those areas? Yes. Well, those are areas that are essential for banks to uh, include in their due diligence. Uh, and it, it, it's uh, something that has to be done. Uh, again, the agencies take a broad view of what is related to an examination report or an examination, and they may very well take the, the official position that many of those documents are uh, confidential uh, without and will not be released unless they're approved 
to be released. At the same time, anyone who does see these must really honor the confidentiality of them and keep these documents in the bank and not take them outside the bank. One thing to remember is that all the issues that are referred to in that correspondence will be the buyer's issues after the deal. David, thank you. Uh, Going back to that list of 10 topic areas, ideally you'd like to have a single person be responsible for each area, and it would be appropriate to ask that person to make a list identifying any inside or outside help that they'd need to cover their area and the specific documents they'd want to see. For example, and there will be overlaps, for example, the general area of contracts could involve legal and several other areas. The point is to determine in advance who has each responsibility and where various specialists from different areas would have to work together. I included compliance in the legal area, but there is some aspect of compliance in several areas. So your team has to be alert to those issues because, of course, they will become your compliance issues. Talking about compliance issues, David, could I ask you to discuss some of those areas, vulnerable areas, fair lending, CRA, BSA, AML, third-party management? Yes. Well, as you as you said, Dave, the the uh, once a bank acquires another bank through a, a merger, uh, that bank, the uh, the acquiring bank, owns the problems that existed prior to their acquisition, and the examiners may very well hold them accountable for through enforcement actions. So, uh, the areas that come up. Um, more frequently these days are fair lending, CRA, BSA, AML, IT, and third-party vendor management, which uh, essentially means that the acts committed by those you've contracted with are attributable to you as a bank, and those can be very tricky and very important as well. Thank you, David. Uh, Reminding you again, those issues become your issues if you buy the bank. I want to talk about credit next. Uh, This is a major part of due diligence. You're buying a loan portfolio. You might begin the process with a review of the examiner's comments on the loan portfolio. That's where I would start. And subject to any applicable laws and regulations, of course, and then look at the seller's internal reports and grading system. Their designated problem loans, large loans, etc., As you begin to review loans and assess the seller's grading, you'll be either more or less confident about what's in the rest of the portfolio and the necessary depth depth of your review. For example, in the installment loan portfolio and home mortgages, you may review some percentage of the portfolio in depth and then based on your your impression of that sample, decide whether to review all of the loans or just sample some percentage of the rest of each portfolio. The important thing to remember is that they will be your loans. One important item you'll be looking for in the lending area is concentrations. For example, credit risks that might behave similarly under certain economic conditions. The obvious example is commercial real estate. You might have either of two reactions regarding concentrations in the seller's loan portfolio. They might represent a concentration for the smaller bank, but wouldn't represent a concentration in your larger portfolio. 
and they might be a welcome balancing addition. Or they might be areas where you already have a concentration issue and the addition of the seller's assets would exacerbate a situation you're trying to correct. You may decide that you'll need some outside professional help in the credit area. There are competent firms that provide that service. But it's a good idea for your employees to be involved to gain exposure to the seller's staff. One of the topics I mentioned earlier was the mark. That refers to the mark-to-fair market value of the seller's balance sheet that will determine how much goodwill the transaction will create on your books at a specific price and therefore how big the impact of the deal will be on your tangible capital. In addition to the valuation, you'll also have to calculate how long it will take to earn back the tangible capital dilution. If your CFO will be responsible for that part of the examination, he or she should decide whether your outside auditors should participate in that part. They usually do. In an earlier podcast episode that we called Planning to Buy a Bank, I talked about the process of assembling the due diligence team before you have a specific acquisition opportunity. All of the members of the team need to know what's expected of them and that they could be called upon with short notice to pack their bags and assemble in some distant city. I don't mean to over-dramatize this, but if you need to get uh, your team together to the site promptly, they have to know where they're going and what they do when they arrive. You'll need to decide if some areas will restart of, of the examination will require outside professional assistance, and those outside professionals, too, will need to participate in the planning and be ready to go when called. When using outside professionals, as I've said before, it's a good idea to have some of your staff working with them during due diligence so that your employees will have direct exposure to the seller's staff. Your colleagues' face-to-face exposure with the seller's employees will have a lot to do with how you feel about the bank and the deal. There may be a question about where and when the due diligence should physically take place. Often the seller's employees, except those involved in the due diligence, will be unaware of the transaction, and the seller will ask you to confine the actual on-site visits to nights or weekends, or they may set up a document room off-site. The seller's investment banker probably will have prepared his client for all of this so that your document request shouldn't surprise them. Often the documents will be waiting for you. How much time will you have? The seller's investment bank will suggest a time that will seem too short. Every time, it's too short. But in any case, you should plan and organize for efficient use of your time. Why is time critical? As I've said before, time is your enemy throughout the acquisition process. David, you want to comment about that, the time issue? Yes, of course. The longer the time, the greater the chance of a leak. Or it could be that the seller decides to go somewhere else. So all this has consequences. Thanks, David. Um, Leaks are always bad. Before the due diligence examination begins, your staff will have had time to review the target's financial statements, both from the highly detailed, publicly available call report of the bank, and then from the information in the investment banker's book. And you know that the seller has been examined 
and passed by professional bank examiners and that its financial statements have been audited probably by a well-regarded accounting firm. Even with all that, there are important judgmental areas, particularly in credit. This next part may cause you to smile, and I apologize, but it's a serious matter. It's a good idea to give your due diligence team some sensitivity training, I said it, sensitivity training, before they descend on the seller. Your colleagues should know that they can ask any reasonable questions. They shouldn't be bashful, but they shouldn't be unpleasant. It's good to remember and that there's probably a lot of anxiety on the other side. There's always a lot of anxiety on the other side. I've seen one deal almost collapse because of the acquirer's behavior during due diligence. At the end of the first day of that due diligence, the seller's CEO said he had had enough and he recommended to his board that they walk away from the deal. After a lengthy meeting with with his board, they talked him out of it. A candid phone call from the seller's investment banker to the CEO of the buyer caused an immediate change in the behavior of the buyer's staff. An apology was offered, the due diligence continued, and the deal, which, by the way, was a good one, went forward. In another deal, the merger agreement had been signed and the deal signed and the deal had been announced but not yet closed when the seller decided they couldn't live with the buyer based on the buyer's integration activities. The seller hired an outside financial consultant with the express directive to find a way to get out of the deal. The consultant, surprise, was able to find a material adverse change, and the deal was terminated. I'm sure those cases are rare, but it makes sense for the buyer's staff to be conscious of the image they're projecting and conscious, too, that the seller's staff is naturally sensitive under the best conditions. When I've been involved in due diligence, I like to start by reviewing the most recent regulatory examination reports, subject, of course, to those legal requirements that David discussed. Similarly, I like to review audits and any management letters, and in that same vein, I like to see board minutes. Those three items tell me what's of concern to the examiners, to the auditors, and to the board, and they give me a fast and succinct impression of the bank and its issues. Before I end, I should alert any buyer to the seller's due diligence on you, reverse due diligence. If you're going to be paying cash in the transaction, the seller's main interest will be to determine if there's any reason you may not be able to go forward with the transaction for any number of reasons. The seller should also be interested in your employee benefits and practices and also in expected staff eliminations. But if you're giving your common stock in the transaction, the seller is buying your bank Excuse me. as much as you're buying theirs, and the seller's reverse due diligence may rightly involve much of what I've described in your due, due diligence. The point is to be ready for the seller's due diligence on you. What happens if what you find in the due diligence is simply unacceptable, possibly in the loan portfolio? Maybe it can be fixed with a change in price. That's an option, not an unusual one. But if it can't be fixed with price, you'll shake hands and walk away. David, that's all I have today. Well, thank you, Dave. I think one added thought is that due diligence is not the end all, that uh, there are occasions where due diligence does not uncover 
significant issues. And in that case, the merger agreement itself becomes very important because it provides for conditions and covenants that would allow the buyer or the seller, for that matter, to uh, cancel the, the agreement. So thank you again for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you.